Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. In this episode, Cameron and I will talk about anger, specifically the rights and wrongs of being angry at God. As we've worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount at Grace, it's impossible to ignore Jesus' teaching on anger in Matthew 5. Yet we are angry people, shaped by a culture that puts a premium on being angry. If you're not angry, we're told, then you're not paying attention. And when that anger is directed at God, well, as you'll see, it gives us plenty to talk about. It often happens that when you are thinking through a certain text in scripture, and especially when you're preaching through a certain text in scripture, you suddenly see references to it all around you. And that's how the Sermon on the Mount has been for me. As we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount for uh, the last few weeks, I've just seen so many references to the underlying Point that Jesus makes uh, connecting the outward action and the heart condition. And in various ways, it seems like that, that relationship has been applicable, applicable to a whole bunch of conversations that I've been having. But I'm in the process now of really diving into the particulars in, in Matthew 5 and talking about anger. And of course, in Matthew 5, Jesus starts with the prohibition on murder and the idea that murder is wrong and murderers should be brought to justice and then brings it down to simple anger, that, that passion in the heart and says to be guilty of that anger, to direct that anger towards your brother, that too is worthy of judgment. I'm not going to go too deep into that because I'm going to preach a sermon about that, but I thought it would be interesting for us to talk through some things about anger because what Jesus is saying here, I think, presents some interesting challenges, especially when it comes to thinking about anger and frustration directed by us at God. I don't know about you, Cameron, but I have certainly had my frustrations with uh, the ways of God and, and what God chooses to do and, and not to do. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think a lot of people feel uh, an anger, a frustration, uh, a resentment even towards the way that God has denied them what they were hoping for. Mm-hmm. The things that the, the, the dreams not fulfilled, the, 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 I'm thinking of of books written that didn't become <laughs> nearly the 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 bestseller, you know, work of genius that 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 I had anticipated and how that still yeah. is difficult and and it's hard not to go to God with the sense of like what's wrong? What what are you thinking? Like like this is definitely something you should do. And so how to how to reconcile like Jesus is teaching on anger with our natural feelings of, of frustration and anger directed towards one another and, and also maybe foremost towards God. Yeah, really good questions. I feel like there's there's so many directions we could go, but I've got a few thoughts at, at first. I mean, 
we're not going to go too deep into the sermon, like you said, but I think, I think we can conclude rather, rather easily that Jesus condemns anger in the heart, you know, as this very serious thing. Anger is not, is not to be taken lightly. And he, of course, in that context, he's talking about human to human relations. And yeah, so you say draw kind of like moving it to the question of God is, is interesting then because the first question is, well, does that same thing apply? But we, in my experience anyway, Christians seem to have a little more latitude with, with how we, we think about our frustrations toward God. Like you were just saying, like we all, we all have, we all have um, hopes and dreams that have been let down. But in a way, this is, this is kind of a, a particularly tough, maybe a particularly tough issue for Presbyterians or for those who have a high view of God's sovereignty, do you think, you know, because Mm -hmm. we do believe that God is sovereign over all things in our lives. So we think, okay, God is good. God's all powerful and he's orchestrating my life and it's not going the way that I think it should. Yes, I know. I I think you're right that that there is a sort of particularly Presbyterian angle to, Mm -hmm. to this problem because um, it makes me go back to one of the greatest and, and earliest English novels, uh, Robinson Crusoe. Mm-hmm. You read Robinson Crusoe, a lot of people are surprised if they go back and actually read the book instead of just getting the, the story from a film or something to find out. This is a profoundly Christian book, and Crusoe does a lot of, of thinking about his condition. You know, he's shipwrecked, he's on this island, and he goes through at the beginning a lot of... Um, I don't know, crazy thoughts and, and, and crazy ideas. And at a certain point he becomes really sick and suddenly he can't use his own ingenuity to fend for himself. And, and as he's sick, he starts contemplating his predicament and how did he end up where he ended up? And he has this chain of reasoning that eventually leads to his conversion to Christ. But as he's thinking through things, he's looking at all of the, the stuff that's happened to him and it dawns on him that none of these sufferings are unknown to God, that God knows all the things that have happened. But then as he thinks it through a little farther, he realizes not only does God know, but God is the one who superintends all things. Like God is the one who is in control of all things. Now, the hard part of that is, you know, he, he says, you know, not only does he know, but he has appointed all this to befall me. But knowing that can be a comfort because it means it is God who I can take my frustrations and suffering to. So I think, you know, when we, we think about the, the morality of anger and frustration directed at God, one observation we can make is at least it's directed towards God as if he is responsible, right. as if he could actually do something about it. Whereas, as you say, um, a person who believes that God doesn't have that kind of control, who isn't providentially uh, ordaining whatsoever comes to pass, can always comfort himself with the thought that if, if if God could make my dreams come true, if God could make the desires of my heart a reality, I'm sure he would because he wants what I want for myself. He wants it even more than I want it for myself. It's just doesn't have the power to do that. There's something standing in the way for, for us, of course, there's just no, there's nothing standing in God's way. And so ultimately, if 
we get what we desire, we praise God for it. If we do not get what we desire, then we have to start asking ourselves some questions about why that is, you know, and this is why suffering and setbacks will often lead us to self-examination and we'll ask ourselves whether it's possible that there's some uh, sin, right? That there's some punishment, uh, chastening, mm-hmm. correction that is behind this. And that's a possibility, but it's also a possibility that uh, God calls us to suffering so that we can endure suffering faithfully for his glory. And so that's another possibility that we have to be ready to reconcile ourselves to. It's not easy to face right. a possibility like that, but if we believe in a sovereign God, then we have to look that possibility squarely in the eye. Yeah. So, so are you saying then that there is no room for anger towards God. It's, it sounded like a moment ago you said it's, you know, it's good or, or better perhaps if there is some anger in your heart to go to go to God because you believe that he's powerful enough to do something. Right. And, and I could see a scenario where I have anger towards God, but I don't want to go to God. I don't want to go to him. So it's just kind of lingering there within me. So maybe I'm venting it towards others, but I, you know, I don't want to go to him. So are you saying there's there's something good about that or not quite? I think what I want to do is is use an analogy because I there, there's a there's a pastoral layer to this and there's also a theological layer and both of them are important and they don't cancel each other out. So the analogy that I want to suggest is doubt. So if you think about the way we talk about doubt, you can see that there are really two layers to it. So on the one hand, from a pastoral standpoint, we acknowledge a lot about doubt. We acknowledge that, that really none of us are free of doubt to some extent. That there's, there's no one who possesses some absolute simple faith without any shadow of doubt. And we recognize in Matthew 28, when the disciples gather around Christ after his, his resurrection, uh, we're told that, that they believed and some of them doubted. You know, so, so even in his inner circle, even amongst those witnesses to the resurrection, you still see that, that gnawing uh, doubt, right? There's, there's a lack of perfect faith, let's say. And that doubt is understandable, right? We don't have a hard time relating to the doubt of other people, because we've experienced some of that ourselves. We get why they ask the questions they do or have the uncertainties that they do. It's, it's all understandable. It's very human. So we can understand and sympathize with doubt. And when we encounter doubt, we try to engage with it and we try to engage constructively. Um, I don't know very many pastors who you could go to and say, you know, I have some doubts and they would smack you over the head and say, stop doubting. Mm -hmm. Typically they would want to engage with you and talk through those doubts and understand those doubts and give you comfort and give you things to think about. So from a pastoral standpoint, the doubt is understandable. The doubt is something we can sympathize with. And it's something that we, we, we interact with gently. Mm -hmm. So, at the same time, we don't say doubt is good, right. right? So we don't say, well, it's good to doubt God. You know, in fact, you ought to doubt God. The scriptures don't speak that way about doubt. Matthew doesn't say they believed and some of them doubted, and it's a good thing. Right. 
Not at all. We're encouraged to get beyond those doubts. And it's easy to see how those doubts are sinful, right? That, that obviously not believing in God, not believing in his providence and his goodness, um, of course that's not good. Of course that's not uh, perfect and righteous. So by definition, of course, it falls short of the standard. So on the one hand, we can approach it very sympathetically and in an understanding way. And on the other hand, we can recognize that, that it isn't what ought to be, that, that doubt is not a good thing. Now, oftentimes you'll hear people talk these days as if doubt is a good thing, you know, and we'll sometimes make it sound like a person who believes but has a lot of doubts is operating on a higher level of awareness than a person who just has simple faith. But Jesus is exactly the opposite. You know, Jesus encourages a simplicity of faith. He, he likens the, the state of a faithful person to, to the faith of a child, Right, very, very simple and, and unclouded. And so that's actually good, and that's something to aspire to. Okay, so take that understanding of doubt, and then let's apply that to anger. Yeah. And I think you have a lot of the same approaches, right? From a pastoral standpoint, that anger and frustration, whether it's directed at other people or directed at God himself, that is understandable, we have all faced suffering and setbacks. We've been disappointed. We've been let down. We, we had certain expectations and good reason to think that things would turn out differently. We've seen, you know, our own dreams die. Well, we've seen other people enjoy the things that we've longed for and oftentimes enjoy them without really appreciating them the way that we would. So all of that contributes to what feels like a very righteous feeling of anger. And the thing about anger as an emotion is that it does tend to blind you to the nuance, right? People who feel angry feel justified. You know, people are, are rarely sort of conflicted in the moment of, of rage, right? Right. You, you single minded, sort of, right. You like, you lash out, but you do it with a sense of rightness and purpose. You know, you're, you're, you're setting things right with your anger. You're outraged because of the injustice or, or what have you. So, Again, all of that is understandable, and all of that is something that, that each of us has experienced. Mm -hmm. And because we have a high priest who is one of us, you know, Christ who is fully human, he can, of course, sympathize with us in our weakness and our limitation. And so I think the anger that we see directed towards God, the, the, like the doubt, is something that we can treat with gentleness. I, w I wonder too, if is it fair to use a different word? The way you're talking, I, I hear of someone who is, whether or not, they might not be frustrated with God exactly, but with the injustice of a situation. Right. And, and that to me sounds more like a kind of lament mm -hmm. than, than like I'm angry with God, but that I'm acknowledging that there is an actual injustice that's happening. And, and that's not good, you know, and I'm experiencing right. that, I, you know, is that, is that any different or I think is it, it still... is. Yeah, no, I, I think it is. I think there's, there's a relationship, Yeah. right? There's a relationship and, and lament is a very common form of expression in scripture. I mean, certainly in the Psalms, you see a, a lot of voice given to legitimate lament. And so I think in a fallen world, not only is lamentation a 
justified response, but often a necessary uh-huh. human response yeah. uh, that, that you would be puzzled if we didn't lament, yeah. right? That we, we need to be able to lament. And so, again, I think that's, it speaks to the complexity of these feelings. So again, a, a lament may sound angry. Mm-hmm. You know, there's certainly uh, an undercurrent of anger that you can see in, for example, imprecatory psalms. You know, when you have uh, psalms which for us can get very uncomfortable, um, urging God to destroy our enemies, to yeah. do to them what they've done to us, like that sort of thing is is, um, you know, a part of you is like, yeah, I totally get why you would sing something like that. And another part of you is like, but you shouldn't sing it in church, (laughs) you know? And and so I think, Mm -hmm. you know, the Psalms, the beauty of the Psalms is that it's not just like the, the songbook of scripture, but in a way it's the songbook of the human heart. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there is a comfort, I think, in seeing that full range of, of human emotion expressed at the same time. I don't think you can find any examples in the Psalter of like a a rage towards God being seen as justified. So that's the other side of it, right? It's anger can be understandable. And if we see it as lament, then we can justify it. But an anger directed towards God, like a resentment directed towards God, I think crosses that line. So if you want to think about the line, you might think about Abraham's intercession for Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, Abraham goes to God and, and, and he challenges him. You know, he says, if, if the judge of all the world isn't going to judge righteously, you know, what's the point of it all? Yeah. You know, he's challenging God essentially to live up to his own principles. And God engages in this, this dialogue with Abraham. But Abraham enters with a sense of like fear and trembling. Yeah. Like Abraham never forgets who's God and, and who's man in this interaction. And so I think there's a difference, right? So, so lamenting something that's taken place and, and, and longing for restoration, longing for the good blessings to come to, for, for the, the wrong to be righted. I think all of that is, is legitimate but that all stops short of like directing anger and frustration towards God. So that's where the other side of it comes in. And, and so, so you might say like the, the two edged pastoral sword. So there's a lot of understanding for the human condition, but then there's also the challenge that needs to take place to us because all too often when we feel anger and frustration and we direct it towards God, you know, God has a lot to answer for that sort of thing. Today, there's a lot of voices that are there to, congratulate you uh, and to assure you that that is the way you should think about God and that God does have a lot to answer for and that, that you should hold him to account, hold his feet to the fire, that kind of thing. Yeah. We've talked a lot about my experience at a, a more liberal seminary, Sure, you know, and, and I, this is a common thing there, both with respect to doubt and anger towards God. There doubt was seen as a kind of intellectual and spiritual virtue, right? Where, like you were mentioning, this this person who is able to doubt and still kind of hang on, but still doubts, is like it's like they're 
they're really wrestling with God, you know, they're, they're really authentic. They're just being honest. Like they don't have that simple childlike faith yes. because they're wrestling and we, we, we commend them. And same with people who, who look at all the injustices in the world and in their own life and say, God has to, you know, come to account and I'm here to call him to account. And we, it, it just felt kind of uncomfortable for me, honestly. And I, I think, I think, well, yeah, I mean, obviously those, you know, those are not the right postures, but even like you're saying, if there's a pastoral space for, for understanding and sympathizing with people with either of those instances, it's not the, it's not like the place you want to land. Yeah. Okay. No, it's not I, commendable. No, I, yeah. I like, I like the place where you land as, as the way to think about it, because I think in all those cases, where that begins is something that can be understood. Mm-hmm. It's where it ends that is the problem. And I think if you wanted to kind of put your finger on, like, how do, what do we call the place where it ends? I want to say it's something like pride or arrogance, mm-hmm. right? That it's, it's, it's no longer appealing to God. It's no longer, uh, you know, calling out to him, crying out to him in lament. It's, it's now turned to a kind of attitude of judgment, right? Where to borrow that C.S. Lewis title, you know, God is in the dock. Yeah. He's got a case to answer. He needs to justify himself to us. And I think that turn is the turn that we want to avoid because that's that's like the turn of pride. And essentially, I think what that means is that that the suffering and the frustration that has motivated us ultimately cannot be of aid to us because we've put it to the wrong use. So what I want to try to suggest in in situations like this from a pastoral standpoint is that we ask ourselves what use this suffering is meant to have, right? Because we know in scripture that, you know, there is some suffering that comes into our lives as punishment for sin there's suffering that is just, it's, it's like the air we breathe. It's because it's a fallen world, you know, and things go wrong in a fallen world. But we also know that God uses suffering to grow our faith, to sanctify us. And we need to be open to that possibility. And it's how we respond, I think, to suffering that really dictates where we're going to land. So the suffering and frustration that enters into my life, if I respond to it with outrage, I deserve better than this. It's not right. It's not fair. God, you need to justify yourself. Ending in that place of pride, that's one possibility, right? But but not a good one. Yeah. I could ask myself whether these things are meant to humble me instead of to fill me with with pride and indignation, but rather to fill me with greater humility. A good example of this would be the way that Job responds to his suffering. I wanted to ask about that because sometimes people bring up Job as an example of righteous anger towards God. Do you think that's the case? I don't. I I think that is a misreading of Job, and it's not a surprising one because... 
Job is one of those books, I think, that is widely misread, almost willfully misread. And when you hear people tell the story of the book of Job, it's always fascinating how <laughs> how different it is from what you find in scripture. I, I had this experience years ago where I sat in on a, a graduate school lecture on the book of Job, and for three hours, the students discussed in this Socratic way the, the book of Job. And what struck me was that although they, they chased every rabbit trail possible, it, it never came up in the course of the entire discussion, the fact that, that God puts Job forward, that God is the one who singles Job out for this suffering. So in this discussion, we you know talked about suffering as if it's meaningless, as if it's pointless. And how do you deal with this pointless pain? But the book of Job, Job's pain isn't meaningless. It It's meaningful. He's actually been put forward by God to suffer for God's glory. And right. so I think if you don't understand that, it's easy to kind of twist that book to say, you know, whatever it is you're trying to say. But once you see that, you have to look more closely at how Job responds or Job refuses to condemn God. In Job's dialogues, those areas where I think people would say, no, here Job changes and here he's expressing anger. I don't think that's right. I think what Job's desire is, he wants to have his day in court. He believes that if he could just lay out his case to God, he would be justified and his suffering would end. So he's seeking to justify himself before God. But again, that presupposes that God is just. And, you know, if God only knew what was going on here, he would set it right. You know, and, and so I think that's a little bit different. That has more of the flavor of lament, I think, than, yeah. than anger, because it's about humbling, not pride. And certainly by the end of the book of Job, Job is a man who is humbled in the presence of God, so much so that he recognizes he should have kept his mouth shut. Yeah. And um, <laughs> yeah, I think we have a lot to learn from that. And, and it's unfortunate that it's, it's, it's so easy for us to indulge those emotional responses and not ask ourselves how we ought to rightly respond. Now, I say that recognizing that it, it's it's useless to say to someone, you shouldn't feel what you feel, yeah. you know, because number one, it's very hard to change what you feel. I, I don't know about you, but if I'm feeling angry and someone says you shouldn't be angry, it makes me angrier. <laughs> you know, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't have the, the desired effect. But on the other hand, I'm also conscious of the fact that I shouldn't feel the way I feel. You know, that's part of the anger. That's part of the frustration is is seeing the hypocrisy of of believing what I believe, but feeling what I feel. And so all of that, I think, is, is it's stuff we already know. And so the encouragement that we need is, a, I think, a gentler kind of encouragement, encouragement to look again at our sufferings and ask ourselves how God would have us res respond to those things rightly. And it helps a lot. I think if we can just admit to ourselves that none of our responses will be sinless. You know, a lot of the, the difficulty is that we're, we're always trying to justify ourselves. We're always trying to say, you know, I felt what I felt and I was right to feel what I felt. And, you know, God does have to answer. I think it's okay for us just to admit, you know, when we feel these things, 
we're wrong to feel them. And it's a tragedy that we feel them. And it would be good for us if we could walk before the face of God with a simple faith in what he's done and could be content the way that Paul speaks of a contentment that, that is, you know, content in whatever condition you find yourself in. But that's a difficult struggle, right? It's difficult to, to live that way, but it would help if we could begin by reminding ourselves that that is our calling, you know, that we need to seek contentment wherever God has us, whether it's, you know, in a palace or in a prison. That's really helpful for me. And I keep thinking back to what you said earlier too about, you know, it's true that all of our, all of our reactions are going to be sinful in, in some way and have some measure of faith and some measure of doubt. So maybe the best that we can, we can do if that's the case is, is go to God with them and, and admit that, you know, like here I am, Lord, I'm bringing this to you. I, I want to trust you. Maybe that's, maybe that's the thing. I want to trust you completely and don't yet, you know, I believe and help my unbelief. And in that kind of humility, maybe that's, you know, that's the gesture out that could change us, you know, and bring us I to think, that place. Of yeah. Humility. I think it, like if you were listening to this conversation and you were saying, okay, where's the application? What, if I, what am I meant to do? That's really the answer. Uh, the anger that you feel, confess it. When I feel angry at God, I want to confess that anger as sin. I want to call it what it is. I want to acknowledge that. And I want to open up my heart and, and, and lay bare the fact that, you know, this is the way that I feel. And, and even when, when I know that the way that I feel is wrong, I want to put it out there and say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, forgive me, but, but, but deliver me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and turn my anger into lament. You know, turn my resentment into longing. And I think if, if that is our prayer, then the way that we... The way that we use our circumstances will change utterly. That's all the time we have for now. Thanks for listening. This episode went a little long. We hope you won't be angry with us. We're grateful to you for sticking with it and hope you'll join us next time. Until then, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org. Thank you.